0: This morning we want to talk about pride as it relates to Esther chapter 5. So let's pray together and then we'll begin reading Esther chapter 5. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the timelessness of your word, for the timelessness of the truths that it includes. We pray that as we reflect on Haman and his overwhelming sense of pride that we see in this chapter, that you would convict us. Help us to see where we have become prideful, and help us to be repentant and humble as it relates to walking with you and also with other people. Help us to recognize our tendencies toward destructive pride in our life. Would you give us the grace to recognize this about ourselves today? And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So by the end of our time together, by the end of our chapter this morning, I want you to see how Haman's pride sets himself up for a really major fall. Uh, You probably know the story by this point. Haman has an incredible fall, and it happens really, really quick. We're going to get to that next week. But his fall is so swift and so destructive that it takes down his entire family and his entire legacy, and it is preceded by this enormous pride that we see in chapter 5. I also want to help you uh, see if there's unhealthy pride in your life, for you to diagnose that and to be able to self assess, and see if there is a prideful heart within you. And not only that, but to contrast the pride of Haman with the humility and the grace of Esther. It's a really fantastic chapter. Let's read it together. Chapter 5, verse 1. It should be on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. But it says, the passage says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, "...while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, "'What is it, Queen Esther?' "'What is your request? "'It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom.' "'And Esther said, "'If it pleases the king, "'let the king and Haman come today "'to a feast that I have prepared for the king.' "'Then the king said, "'Bring Haman quickly "'so that we may do as Esther has asked.' "'So the king and Haman came to the feast "'that Esther had prepared. "'And as they were drinking wine after the feast, "'the king said to Esther, "'What is your wish?' It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. When Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said." Now let's just pause here before we go on and kind of reset the scene. Because if you were here last week, you know that we left on a cliffhanger. You know that Esther chapter 4 was all about this devastating announcement that Haman was going to execute all the Jews in the Middle East. And when Mordecai learned of this, he tore his clothes, he put dirt on his head, he went out into the middle of the square and he began mourning and lamenting, and all of the Jews all over the kingdom joined with him in this mourning uh, and fasting and this period of time where they were in great agony. They were just in terrible agony that all of their people, all of the, they had read the decree that Haman had written and signed with the king's signet ring that all the Jews were supposed to be executed on this coming day. And it wasn't just the men, it wasn't just the women, it wasn't just the elderly, it was the children, everybody, and all of the possessions of all the Jews were going to be seized, almost 400 tons worth of money. And so as this decree went out, all of the Jews were in terrible anguish. That was last week. And so Mordecai appeals to Esther, who is secretly a Jew. And he says, maybe the Lord has brought you to the throne, to the queen, to this position for such a time as this, that you may intercede for all the Jews in the kingdom. And so Esther says, uh, I will do it even though it may cost me my life. I will go into the king and I will plead for the life of all of the, all of the Jews. And so at that time, they declare a three-day fast. So all of the Jews have been humbled. They're tearing their clothes as a sign of humility. They're, they're fasting. They're denying themselves food uh, for three days so that every time they experience the pain of hunger, then that will remind them of the anguish and the, the, the need to seek the Lord's face. I don't know if, how often you fasted but over the past few months, our church—I've been encouraging people to fast, and I've sent out a fact sheet about fasting to anyone who's requested it. And anytime you engage in a fast, uh, and you do it in a—you know—in a healthy way, uh, anytime you do that, there's something that takes place after a period of hours. Uh, if you—if you just intentionally skip a meal. Uh, You know, you start to notice that. And then after a while, your your energy level goes down and uh, the chemistry in your body changes a little bit because your body has been used to and accustomed to the habit of eating and giving your body energy. And and so when you deny that, uh, all sorts of signals start to fire off and your body begins to experience those withdrawals. But as you do that, it is intended to thrust you into the presence of God and to acknowledge the sacrifice of Jesus, to acknowledge the pain and the discomfort that he experienced and, and to help you to pray. And, and as you do that, it's a real humbling feeling. It's a helpless feeling that you don't have uh, the energy, you don't have the strength. And as you get weaker, as you go day by day, your, your strength is sapped away from you, even as you're seeking the Lord for a purpose. At the time that Esther, on the third day, has put on her clothes, she has not had a bite for three days. She's absolutely weak. She's absolutely vulnerable. She has all the pressure of not just her family, not just her cousin Mordecai, but all the children of the entire Jewish race are riding on her shoulders as she comes into this place at the beginning of chapter 5. She puts on these robes, these royal robes, uh, and stands in the inner court, and this is a moment of life and death. Because according to the Persian custom, if the king didn't invite you into his presence, then you would be immediately executed. And so Esther, in weakness and humility, places herself with the entire um, Jewish race riding on her shoulders. And the king gives grace. The king gives grace. We're going to touch on a little bit more of Esther's humility. But I wanted you to have some insight into that as we contrast it with this next section of Esther chapter 5. Because I want you to see the pride of Haman in verses 9 through 14. And in a few minutes, I'm going to pause the recording and I'm going to ask you some ways that pride manifests itself in your own life. We're just going to turn this time into a a little small group uh, and I'm just going to get some feedback and then I'll continue the recording and we'll go on with it. But I want you to begin to think about how pride manifests itself in your life in destructive ways. So let's read verse 9. In verse 9, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart because he'd been invited to the banquet. He'd had this feast with the king and the queen, and there was another feast the next day between the king and the queen and Haman. So he was joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Now you remember, Haman was elevated, he was in the king's service, and the king had declared that if anybody sees Haman, he should bow down and pay him honor. And the beginning of this genocidal plot was Mordecai refused to bow. He refused to bow down. He refused to honor Haman in any way whatsoever. And so that began this uh, wrathful, rageful um, situation that the Jews find themselves in because of Mordecai and Haman. And so Mordecai, even in the midst of the decree, can you imagine the pressure you just bow. Just bow down. If you just bow to him, maybe he'll rescind the decree or change the decree. But even after the decree, even after three days of fasting and mourning, Mordecai has the opportunity to humble himself, doesn't he? He could bow down right here. He could have, he could have acknowledged Haman's authority. Even in spite of his wickedness, all he, he just had to clench his teeth get on his face and bow down and give him honor. But even in the midst of this genocidal plot that is at the heart of these two men, Mordecai refuses to tremble or to bow down. And so Haman is filled with wrath against Mordecai. I personally think Mordecai has a great faith. He's already said that the Lord is going to raise up deliverance for the Jews, whether it comes from Esther or not. He's already declared that God is going to save the Jews. And so he is not afraid of Haman at all. And it shows here because Haman wanted Mordecai's humility and he wanted, his, um, he wanted to have him bow before him. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself. Right? He m- met eyes with Mordecai and everybody's bowing but one guy. And so Haman restrained himself and went home. And even though in the midst of good news, the banquet with the king and queen that he just had, and the banquet of the king and queen that he's going to have tomorrow, Haman called together all of his friends and his wife, Zeresh. In verse 11, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. How would you like to be a part of this dinner party, right? Have you ever been invited to a party for the honor of the person who invited you, and and then for them to tap the glass and everybody is attention, and they begin to read the list of all their accomplishments and all their possessions and all the great things that has has been bestowed on them. What a wonderful party, right? This is a such an event that everybody is basking in the glory of this arrogant prideful man this is his dinner party but before his wife and before all of his friends and his family and Haman recounted to them verse 11 all of these things and how he had advanced in all those things verse 12 then Haman said even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she had prepared and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. By the way, that's about seventy feet or more. It's not a small thing, this gallows that he is about to make. Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. I'm not sure what kind of construction force he had available in the afternoon, but they construct this thing overnight, this 70-foot gallows that they're going to hang Mordecai off of. It is ready in the morning, as you'll see in the next chapter. So think about, he's got a wife and all of his friends. He is in a banquet hall a crowd bigger than this, maybe triple this, and they're all listening to him in his pride and in his arrogance describing all these things. It's easy to recognize the pride in Haman's life. It's a whole lot harder to recognize it in our own lives because pride is one of those insidious qualities that if you are prideful, you rarely know it. So let's look at Haman's pride and see if it signals any indication of pride in our own lives? What prideful signals do you see in Haman's life in this passage? You can see right away that in verse 9a, pride takes pleasure in favorable circumstances. Pride takes extreme pleasure in pleasant, comfortable circumstances. If everything is going well for you, if your situation is going well, pride uh, relishes comfort and provision and gifting. And if everything is going well, pride loves those situations. Pride once and organizes and puts in motion an atmosphere whereby you are cradled and comforted and everything is, all your needs are met and all your situations, everything is in your favor and pride loves that situation. Pride loves a position where you are most secure, when you are most stable, when all of the outward circumstances are met in your life. Pride loves favorable circumstances. I'm in a small group of men and, and every week for about a year now, we read a chapter of Scripture a day and we come together on a Thursday and we read that chapter, uh, at that seven days of, of Scripture reading. And for the past few weeks, we've been in the book of Job. And you're familiar with the book of Job. This guy has uh, everything he needs and there's this heavenly conversation uh, between the angels and God and Satan, and Satan says, "Of course he loves you. Everything's great for the guy. Everything is perfect. He's got all the what, he's got all the, the money. He's got everything in his favor. Everything's going well." And the Lord says, well, will take everything away from him. And you're going to find that Job is a faithful guy." And sure enough, everything is taken from Job, and and in this situation, he never curses God. He never is is uh, shaking his fist at God. At the removal of favorable circumstances. Pride loves favorable circumstances but despises humble circumstances. Second thing I want you to see about pride is that it triggers wrath when you aren't treated the way you think you should be treated. Have you ever had a false expectation? Right? Haman walks out and he expects everybody just to instantly hit the ground and pay him homage. I don't know if you have that expectation when you walk into a room that that people are going to, you know, greet you and clap for you or be polite to you or friendly or acknowledge you. Or sometimes we project uh, out of our own understanding expectations that other people may just not be aware of. And when they don't meet those expectations, something inside of us begins to boil. We get become angry or frustrated or wrathful when unmet expectations creep up in our life. I don't know if that uh, is true of you, but pride triggers anger when you aren't treated the way you think you should be treated. It is a subtle way of saying, I deserve better, and you're not treating me well. And something inside of us uh, bristles at the thought that someone isn't giving me the honor that is due to me. And we can often become demanding about it, and we can be forceful in our demands, for honor and for attention and for respect and for the things that we think that we rightfully deserve. Pride triggers wrath when you aren't treated that way. Pride boasts of that which doesn't matter at all, that which isn't eternal. Look at all the things that Haman is proud of. He's proud of all of these things uh, and he begins to recount them in front of all the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, the promotions that he has, the ways in which the king has honored him, how he has advanced him above everything. Verse 12, even Queen Esther, this prideful experience of being exclusive, uh, he loves these things, pride boasts in numbers, how much money, how many possessions, how many titles, how many sons, how many promotions. All of those things are signals of pride in a person's life. Another thing we see in this passage in verse 12 is pride feeds on the exotic and the exclusive. It's not enough to go on vacation, but you've got to go to the most exclusive places to have the most unique experiences. Pride loves those things. Pride refuses to be content. If you look at verse 13, he's got everything. This guy is the second in command of an enormous area. And he's got everything he needs. He's got a wife, he's got sons, he's got security, he's got money, he's got advancement, he's got all those things. The only thing he doesn't have is one kind of crusty little Jewish guy that won't bow down to him. And and though he has everything, pride refuses to be content and said, If I only had one more thing. Yeah, Pride says that I'm not content with what I have. Uh, It's it's not enough for me just to have a little bit. I have to have it all. I have to have all the people. I have to have all the possessions. I have to have everything. That's some of the signals that we see in Esther chapter 5 about Haman's pride. This passage shows Haman's pride, and we know that he's going to be destroyed, right? You've probably read the rest of the story, but... Pride will devastate his life. It will come before the fall, as Proverbs tells us. Uh, Contrasted with the humility of Esther. You read in those first few verses of chapter 5 that Esther's humility was amazing. Her selflessness and her willingness to die on the spot. When she woke up and she got ready, and it says in chapter 5, verse 1, at the end of three days, which... Anytime the Bible says, on the third day, can you think about other significant things that happened on the third day? Abraham uh, takes his son Isaac to sacrifice him on a mountain conspicuously close to the future Jerusalem. It's a three-day journey. He puts the wood on his back. He travels for this three-day journey. In all these places, whenever Scripture signals a third day, what is it foreshadowing? It's foreshadowing this cross event. It's foreshadowing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Esther's humility shines on this third day in weakness and vulnerability and her readiness to die. The Bible really values humility. It values humility. God values humility in your life. Um, You think about Moses versus Pharaoh. Moses had this enormous battle with pharaoh moses is 80 and pharaoh is prideful and won't let the people of israel go and it just becomes this immense battle but we know something about moses in numbers 12 3 one of my favorite verses in all of the bible that moses was a humble man a very humble man more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth why did god choose to use moses he was humble. He understood who he was before the king. You think about Deuteronomy 8, where God describes why he humbled Israel, so that they would learn that man does not live by bread alone, so that they would learn that God provides for them when their shoes don't wear out or their clothes don't wear out, that they should be in humble dependence on him. In all these ways, when God works humility into your life, it is for his max glory, for your dependence on him, and for your relational intimacy with him, but the pride of your life resists that and wants to be self-dependent, wants to be self-providing for you and your family, wants the credit, wants the glory, wants all of these things. But God desires humility. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Think about Matthew 18. Jesus said, Whoever humbles himself is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' birth, which we celebrate at this time of year, it came in humility, didn't it? It came in a sense of vulnerability, with, not with pomp and circumstance and, and, and all those things, but in a lowly manger and How many of you have placed your children in a a feed trough? Anybody? Anybody do that? No, nobody does. It's it's this humility that God would bring about the salvation of the world in such a humble, meek way. He desires humility. In conclusion, what should we do? In conclusion, what should we do? The first thing is humble yourself and repent of pride. Humble yourselves and repent of pride. There's a way in which you have felt prideful or detected pride in your own life. Acknowledging that before God and saying, God, this is, this is pride in my life and I recognize it. Maybe before today you didn't see it or maybe you've seen it all along and this is kind of one of those moments where you realize that pride comes before the fall but humility comes before honor. Let me just plead with you as a pastor to rid your life of that stubborn, unapologetic, willful, prideful, ambitious need to be the center of attention or to be celebrated humble yourselves and repent of pride Matthew 23 says whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted James 4 6 says he gives more grace therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble James four ten says humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you 1 Peter 5, six. humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. First thing, humble yourselves. Repent of pride. Try to stamp it out in any way possible. Let it be a regular part of your confession, not just to God, but to other people. Have, I apologize. It was prideful of me to say this. It was prideful of me to do that. And just start to name it. sin dies as you drag it into the light. But the longer you hide it and keep it under uh, darkness, it will continue to grow. The second thing is looking to Jesus and looking to his intentional humility. As you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus, your intimacy with him, you will experience a humility as you follow him. Why? Because Philippians 2 describes the path that Jesus took as the path of humility, the path of humility. It says he humbled himself, he became a man, he became obedient, he became even obedient to death on a cross, and because of that, God elevated him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You know, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you will reflect his humble character, a a character of humility and servanthood. Though being God himself, he became the least. And so if you are following Christ, one sign of your maturing faith is increasing humility and decreasing self. You remember the great line of John the Baptist when they came to him and said, Who are you? What's becoming of your kingdom? And then what's becoming of your ministry? And then his disciples say, Look, everybody's going to Jesus. And John's like, Good. He must increase, and I must decrease. That's the call for maturing in Christ. And if you grow in knowledge, but don't decrease in humility, your maturity is false. Following Jesus leads to a changing character, which reveals itself in greater humility. Humility is tricky because once you feel like you've got it, you just lost it. Right? Oh, I'm so humble. So humble, so humble, so humble. That's a revelation that you're prideful. The last thing I want you to see is that the gospel itself is for the humble. You can't receive Jesus, you can't receive salvation until you humbly recognize the need for salvation. And prideful people don't see a need, do they? They just never acknowledge that there's a need. If you refuse to ask for help, it's an indication of pride in your life. But... The greatest thing that the gospel does is it penetrates that pride and helps you recognize your need for the gospel. Did you know that hell is for the proud of heart? 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-eight 28 says, You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the proud to bring them down. Hell is for the prideful of heart. And the gospel, the good news is that you don't have to settle for that. You can experience the good news of Jesus Christ as you recognize your need for salvation, that He died for you, that you can't save yourself, that a works-based righteousness will never get you into heaven. You can't be moral enough. You can't be good enough. You can't be uh, religious enough. You can't know the Bible enough. Those works that you think contribute to God's pleasure in your life, they will never please Him. The only thing that pleases Him is that Jesus died on the cross on your behalf. Next week, we're getting into Esther 6. And there's an interesting thing in Esther 5.1 where she puts on royal robes. Robes is mentioned 75 times in the Bible. And it's a fascinating word study that we're going to get into next week. But suffice it to say that those robes that Esther wore... They were given to her. She didn't earn them. She didn't deserve them. She was an orphan child in the lowest place that was elevated. And when she put on those robes, those royal clothes, it allowed her to have access to the king who showed her mercy when she deserved death. You see the picture of the gospel there? The gospel is so beautiful that we don't have it all together The gospel is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And if you have that understanding that we are not deserving to wear the royal robes, but they are given to you, and that the king bestows mercy, extends mercy and grace to you, not because of your own robes of righteousness, but because of the robes that he clothes you in, you have a better understanding of the good news of Jesus. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you that we can see in the gospel... In this chapter, the destructive force of pride, I pray that as we acknowledge how terribly destructive it is in our lives, that you would give us the grace and the gift of repentance, that we may repent of our pride and humble ourselves. I thank you, Lord, that you humbled yourself, that you died on a cross so that we may have access to the Father. And I pray, Lord Jesus, this morning that if you would... uh, Convict us of our pride and help us, Lord, to walk with you in humility that we might be honoring to you, that you might receive maximum glory from our lives. Would you help us to recognize and repent of pride in our lives? We pray that you would use this message this morning for your good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.